what do you want to do with your life? The question paralyzes students trying to plan the route that they'll take to graduate in a mere four years. They're asked what your lives, what are your interests? What kind of job opportunities will there be in your field of interest, if there are any? And what steps do you need to take to get there on time so you're not late? Every class period for the next four years must be considered to make sure that you've got all of your generals, all of your required classes, and enough electives taken to look good on a resume. And maybe if you're lucky, you'll even get a free period or two to do something you like just for fun. Who are the ones that are being asked these life-determining questions? Eighth graders. Because when you're in eighth grade, you know exactly what you want to do with your life. When you're 50, you know exactly what you want to do with your life, right? They don't even have their driver's license yet, many of them, but they're being asked to map out not only the classes for the next year of school, but for all of high school, and then even beyond that to whatever post-secondary education their dreams will take them. It's a little overwhelming for a college freshman, or even college seniors for that matter, let alone eighth graders. And yet the pressure continues. What do you want to do with your life? Guidance counselors, schools, parents, and other well-meaning adults in their lives are just trying to help students get ahead, to look ahead, to prepare them for the future. Looking toward the future is a good practice to make. It helps you to make the right choices today to prepare you for where you want to be tomorrow, metaphorically speaking. Some people have one-year goals, three-year goals, five-year goals, or even retirement goals. For others, long-range planning includes what are we having for supper tonight. But hey, that's at least a start. So what does the future hold in store for us? No one really knows. If we've learned anything this past year, it's that we don't know what tomorrow has in store for us. Still, it's good for us to look ahead and to be ready for the future, whatever it looks like. Looking ahead helps you to see what's coming. It helps you to realize the moment that we're in now and to take action to be ready. In a sense, that's what Peter is mentioning here in 1 Peter. Peter shares how the prophets searched the scriptures to see what was coming in the present moment his audience found themselves in and the proper action for them to take considering where they are and what lies before them. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I read verses 10 through 16. And again, I'll invite you to stand out in respect for God's word if you're able. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, reading in Jesus' name. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray this morning that you would sanctify us in your truth today. Open up our hearts, our minds, our ears to hear the message that you have for us today. 
Help us, Father, to see you for who you are and for, to see all the blessings that come from your hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Something's coming. It's something that the prophets of old searched the scriptures to study and know more about. Something that they prepared for. Something that they were excited about. Something that even the angels longed to look into. Peter writes in verse 13. What could be so marvelous that these holy men of God from the Old Testament and all of God's angels desire to look to, to look at and gaze at in wonder and anticipation? The answer is given for us in verse 10. As to this salvation... It's this salvation. And what is this salvation that Peter is talking about? He opened his epistle referring to it, describing it. From verses 3, and five, three through 5, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The salvation here that Peter is speaking about is one that comes entirely by God's great mercy, causing us to be born again. This is entirely the work of God that he is referring to here. The salvation that he refers to is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it's protected by God himself, for the salvation we'll experience when Christ returns. This is something that we each have to look forward to, something to be excited about, something to search the scriptures for as well. People have spent a lot of time talking about Christ's return, which usually causes people to tense up for a turbulent time, a turbulent future, which eventually resolves. But in the immediate future, in the here and now, there's going to be a terrifying experience. Have you ever been taught or learned about God's, Jesus' second coming, only to be instilled with fear and anxiety? Recently, there was one pastor who made the prophecy of who would win the election, followed by assassination attempts and civil unrest, all of these things he's prophesying here, and an asteroid would crash into the earth, and hordes of people will start going to war with Israel. All of this because the Lord told him about these things. But this isn't what the prophets were looking for here. This isn't what they realize as they search the scripture. This isn't what they're looking forward to. That's not the event the angels stare dumbfounded at. Now, this salvation event is defined for us in verse 11, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, which verse 11 notes for us as the grace coming to you and available to you. The prophets diligently searched the messages of this, that the spirit of Christ within them was indicating, searching again and again the holy scriptures to determine the person and the time of Christ. Where would he come? When would he come? Who is he? Who is this coming Messiah, this king who was promised so long ago? Who would he be? How would he accomplish this grace that was to come? And why would he suffer the way the Spirit revealed if he is going to be the king? How could the glory follow that suffering? They studied and they studied, 
searching the scriptures while looking ahead in anticipation to the coming of Christ, preparing themselves. This message that they studied wasn't fully explained to them. It wasn't fully revealed to them, but it's named for us here in verse 3. The living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so they waited in anticipation for this Messiah to come. This Messiah who would come and bring in his kingdom. In this season of Advent, we remember the earnest anticipation for the Messiah's first Advent, his first coming. Earnestly waiting for him to return to finalize his work of redemption when Jesus comes again. To finalize his deliverance, his calling a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The people waited for the coming kingdom of God to be established. Christ came. He suffered. He died. He rose again. And he established his kingdom. One that wasn't made by human hands, but one that's made through the proclamation of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit creating faith in human hearts through that proclamation. We also remember during this season that the Christ is coming again that the king will come again to judge the earth in righteousness and holiness. And this is the event to which we look forward to, which shouldn't cause us to fear and tremble and to be scared, but should bring about joy and comfort and peace in our hearts, knowing that Jesus is coming back for us to deliver us. Christ's return is the event that we are to keep on the forefront of our minds. It gives context to everything we face in this life. Every illness that we have, every threat that we face, every danger, every temptation, every evil, every loss, every frustration, every hopeless situation. Christ coming again should bring context to everything we experience in this life. Christ is coming again who himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The return of Christ gives us an eternal context, helping us to realize this moment in which we live in, helping us to realize this present moment. Realizing this present moment is much easier said than done, isn't it? There's always something that needs to be done, a project or a task that's hanging over your head, which causes you to only be half present. And perhaps you're only half present here right now. You're here physically but maybe not mentally, drifting off to the many things that you still have to do today. I've got to get the rest of my Christmas decorations up. I've got to figure out what I'm eating for lunch, thinking about homework that's due at midnight or due next week, some project that needs to get done. The chores around the house you told yourself you'd get done yesterday but aren't done, so you have to do them today. And the list goes on. Being present is hard work. And it takes discipline and it takes intentionality. It's a choice that you make in your own mind to be present here and now. So let's pause and for a moment, let's do that together. Right now, we're gathered together as a congregation. And for those who will listen to this message at home or in the car or watching it on their computers, though they're not gathered here with us today, they're hearing the same word of God proclaimed. It's a privilege that many around the world don't have. Many even in our own country don't have to gather together right now to be present, hearing God's word. Yet by the grace and mercy of God, you do. By the grace and mercy of God, you are hearing it in your own language, the language you grew up speaking. Another privilege that not everyone in this world has. 
And through this word of God, the Holy Spirit speaks to you, telling you of this salvation, first revealed by the prophets millennia ago, is now being announced and proclaimed to you. The message of the Messiah's birth, of his suffering, death, and resurrection reaches your ears and reaches to your hearts. This salvation is announced to you, available to you, one for you. It's being reserved and protected for you. And it's being delivered to you right now by the mercy of God to bring you a living hope, to bring you salvation. Do you realize the tremendous gift that this present moment is? How often do we take that gift for granted? This is the present. This is a moment we find ourselves in right now. Between Christ's first coming and his second coming, Christ the Messiah has come and has accomplished everything he set out to do in his first coming. And now God in his grace comes to you to create, build, and sustain faith in our crucified and risen Lord through his word and through his spirit. And soon Jesus will return in all of the glories spoken of in his word, all the glories that have been promised to wipe away every tear, to dwell with his people for all eternity, and to make all things new. Realize this moment we're living in. And don't take it for granted any longer. We live in an age the Old Testament prophets longed to see. We live in a moment where we receive the salvation that the angels themselves long to look at, staring at, wondering, how can this be? The mercy of God has come to you. And now it's time for us to take action. It's good for us to look ahead to the salvation to the salvation glory that lies in store for us. Again, as Peter writes, that imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance reserved and protected by the power of God for you. It's good for us to realize this present moment that we've been given comes to us in, by the incredible mercy which God has for you. And in light of these things, Peter informs us of the only proper response in verse 13. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming again. And when he comes, that grace that we've been promised, that grace of seeing Christ face to face, seeing him as he is in his full glory, of being judged pure, holy, and righteous, of being brought home to live with him forever. This grace, which is coming, which has been promised, will be fully realized. Fix your hope, Peter writes, completely on this grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This isn't a suggestion or a recommendation that Peter makes, but it's an imperative. He's commanding us here. God, through his word, is commanding us to fix our hope on this grace whether we want to or not, whether we feel like it or not, this is the proper response, the only proper response that we have. And this is what God commands us to do. Prepare your minds for action, Peter says. Or literally, he says, gird up your loins. The idea of picking up your tunic, wrapping it around your waist so nothing hinders you, so you can run and do the task that God has called you to do to gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your mind for action. Make your mind up decisively. Prepare your minds for action. One theologian explains it this way. Set your mind to go somewhere and go. 
with your eyes always to the future return of Christ and the grace that he is coming to bring to you. Keep sober in spirit and be sober-minded. This idea of being sober-minded isn't a reference to chemical influence here, although that certainly is included, but it's more so mental influence. Be thinking correctly. Think the right thoughts, the correct thoughts. Think contextually. This world is passing away and so are its lusts and everything in this world. What earthly things factor into our decisions more so than the impending return of Christ? What are the factors that we base our decisions on? What is it that distorts our ability to make the right decisions, to honor, fear, love, serve, and obey God above all things? Maybe it's not a material thing for us. Maybe it's a teaching. Maybe it's a religious teaching that's intoxicating our minds. We have the wrong idea about who God is. We have the wrong idea about who we are, that we can somehow manipulate God to come back whenever we want him to, leading us to forget about this present moment which comes to us entirely by God's grace, leading us to forget about what's been promised to us. What is it in your life that is causing anxiety and fear? Or take it to where Peter takes it in verse 14. What are the lusts that are calling out to you, begging you to come back? What are the old habits, the old sins, the old desires, the old tendencies that tempt us to put this living hope of the grace that is yet to come on the shelf and to indulge in all ungodly behavior? Whether it's this idea that you have more time, don't worry about it. Or whether it's this idea that God will forgive you. Again, there's promised grace. It doesn't matter how you live. It'll all work itself out in the end. Do what you want to do. Or you're only young once, so do what you want to do. Or you'll have time to get right with the Lord later on. Be sober-minded. Think contextually. Remember this moment that we are living in. Remember, look ahead to what is going to come. What is it in your life that is obstructing the glorious promise of the return of Christ? God calls us to be yourselves holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. God calls us to be holy. It's a consistent demand in both the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. And there's something really interesting about this call of God here that we see in this text. Yes, this call to be holy is a command of God. It is another imperative which we don't have the choice to make on. Am I going to do this or not? We should do this. Do this. Set your mind to do this, to be holy. But it's also more than that. Because being holy isn't about our actions or behavior even though we're called to holiness within our behavior. It's stated passively here. It's a call to action. It's a command for us, but it's a command that we don't do. We can't provide this holiness. So where does this holiness come from that God clearly calls us to? It comes from the Holy One who called you. In verse 16, it's stated in the future tense, You shall be holy, for I am holy. No matter how hard we try, we'll try, we'll never be able to secure our own future, our future holiness. It'll never be up to God's standard. No matter how hard we try to keep all of his laws and commands, to be holy as he himself is holy, we'll always fall short. And here is where the beauty of the gospel continues to shine. And this, again, is why we set our hope completely and entirely on the grace that is to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
It's not based on our works or our ability to be holy ourselves. Our holiness comes from Christ, who himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. Where does our holiness come from? It's not from us staying away from sin or doing what God has called us to do. This holiness isn't secured by our own works, but it's secured by faith in the declaration of God that you shall be holy, for I am holy. The finished work of Christ will be counted and credited to your account because of what Christ has done. In this life, we remain only halfway pure and holy. And we get that, don't we? As we look at our our own lives, we can ask ourselves a question on a scale of 1 to 10, how holy have you been this past week? And if anyone wants to tell themselves a 10 to my face, go ahead and, and do that. But I don't think anyone who is honest with yourself is going to say, I have secured for myself a perfect 10 in the holiness scale as God demands. We fall short, don't we? Daily. Every single day we fall short. And so in this life, we remain only halfway pure and holy. Luther writes and explains. He continues on. But the Holy Spirit must always work in us through the word, granting us daily forgiveness until we attain to that life where there will be no more forgiveness, where there will be no more forgiveness because we have been forgiven finally, ultimately, and we will not sin any longer is what he is talking about. And then when we pass from this life, in the blink of an eye, the Holy Spirit will perfect our holiness and will eternally preserve us in it. This is the grace that is to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When God judges you perfect, pure, holy, spotless. When God judges you righteous for the sake of Christ. This is the hope which we set ourselves completely on and entirely on, the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as our hope rests on this declaration of God and this finished work of God, it rests securely, giving us all comfort and giving us all security and giving us all hope. See your salvation and your holiness coming at the revelation of Christ. This is what we have to look forward to. Knowing that this is the promise of God being declared to you right now, let it give context to your daily life. Let it affect the way that you interact with those around you. Affect the way how you view God's commands to be holy. Let it affect the way that you set your mind to do the things in this life that God calls you to do. And fix your hope entirely and completely on Christ alone. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you and we praise you for your word and for its truth. We thank you, God, that you have revealed to us through your prophets, through your word, this salvation which comes to us through your word by faith, through the Holy Spirit. We praise you for that. God, I pray that you would help us to realize this moment that we are in, that you would help us to realize that our holiness, our sanctification isn't found in what we do or what we don't do, but it's found by what you have done and what you have promised to do. Help us to find hope and safety and security in that. Lord, give it con- help us to have, uh, live in an accurate context, an eternal context for our daily lives. Lord, help this truth to affect the way that we interact with those around us.
We pray, Lord, that this truth would also be on our hearts and on our minds and on our lips, that those around us would also hear of this glorious grace that is yet to come. Full pardon, forgiveness, and not just forgiveness, Lord, but the declaration of righteousness given to fallen, poor, miserable sinners like ourselves. We thank you for that gift, which is being reserved in heaven for us today. Keep us faithful in this truth today and every day. In your name we pray, amen.